You guys know I do a lot of reading, but just not my notes, right? Uh, <laughs> whether it's for a class I'm taking or, or research for a sermon, um, just because I, re- I really like to read. And when I do, one of the things that I think I find the most personally fascinating about consuming all of that material is when you see how different things start to fit together over the course of history, whether, whether it's the confluence of circumstances uh, that gave George Washington such decisive victories in the 1700s, uh, or the interplay of events that led to World War I, uh, or the series of decisions that caused the housing bust of 2008, all, all the way up to the really big things like, and we talked about this in Sunday school, how all the major themes of scripture interconnect and wind their way like a scarlet thread that's woven throughout the biblical narrative, making them more than just a collection of stories, but the greatest story of how God worked throughout history to save a people for himself. And there's a really kind of, I think, unique connection that presents itself in the text this week as we come to the second chapter of Second Thessalonians uh, and doing it on this particular Epiphany Sunday as a church where we're celebrating the revealing of the messianic office of Christ to the world. But in the text series that we're in, takes us to the revelation of a darker epiphany that's still on the horizon. And you're going to see that as we look together at Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'm going to be reading to you the first 12 verses. So I invite you to open the scripture in front of you or open up your Bible app if you have it. Um, and and by just, just parenthetically, our Bible app, our, our church app here, uh, has the same scripture version in it that I, I read from each Sunday. Uh, but Second Thessalonians chapter 2, first 12 verses, and listen for the voice of the Spirit. And Paul says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come and comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all powers and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, our Father, we confess that we don't live by bread alone, Lord, but by every word that proceeds from you. And so take now, we ask what we have read and heard, uh, and nourish us today in the ways of eternal life through Christ Jesus, the bread of heaven. Amen. Amen. 
So if you remember from Paul's previous letter to the Thessalonians and then, uh, you know, right here near the beginning of the second, he's trying to reassure these believers in this little church that he had planted that they hadn't missed the Lord's second coming. And they really needed to stop running around acting like maybe they had. Uh, and it seemed like Paul didn't know exactly why they were so confused since his, his teaching with them had been clear while he was with them or in what circumstances may have brought uh, about the Thessalonians mixed up beliefs about the day of the Lord. But in verses two and three that I read you, it kind of sounds like he expected some uh, nefarious activity had gone on. And so he says to them, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by either spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Because what he's been trying to do is bring them comfort. That's been one of Paul's underlying purposes in connecting uh, all the way through these two letters to the Thessalonians. Uh, and to see that, just, just go back uh, to chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians for a moment, uh, beginning in verse 13, where he says, as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. So this is not from Paul, it's from the Lord. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. <clears throat> For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage or, or comfort one another with these words. And, and so he's saying, relax. When the Lord comes back, you're going to know it. And you're not going to miss it. Because it's going to be a day like no other day in the history of the universe before or since. And, and amen. Thank you, brother. And we're going to hear the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And, and those dead believers whose spirits are with the Lord and their bodies are going to be reunited and come up out of the grave. And then we who are alive are going to be gathered to meet the Lord in the air. That's what we're all waiting for, right? Amen. amen. That's what we're all waiting for. And, and that is whether you are pre-mill or post-mill. That's the next event on the prophetic calendar. And I think we can all agree that when he comes back, I want to be with him. Right? Uh, and that there's only one way to do that. And that is to repent and believe the gospel of salvation in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. So that we can, in the words of 1 John chapter 2, is one of my favorite verses, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. We may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Right? And that should be all of our prayers. And I think Paul would chime in there uh, again here and say, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Which means, church, if we're looking for Christ to come again, we don't need to live in fear. We need to live in expectation and in hope. But there, there's a counterpoint to that. There's a counterpoint for those outside of the kingdom. And for those who refuse to bend the knee to Christ. And a very different future awaits. And, and Paul didn't write about it to scare the Thessalonians. And I'm not you know, sharing it today to necessarily scare you sitting here. 
but so that together we can share this information with those who still refuse the gospel and who refuse the outstretched mercy of God. Share it with those folks who think they're, they're too educated or, or too sophisticated to believe all of this so that one of two things is going to happen. Either that one, they'll have a change of heart now if the Holy Spirit inspires them to faith. Or that two, one day, uh, when the day of the Lord comes and if those folks find themselves left behind, they're going to know for sure what happened and why. Uh, and again, at this point, it doesn't really matter whether you and I necessarily agree on the exact timing of how this is all going to play out in the future. Um, as I said in Sunday school, we don't need to divide over issues of eschatology. But one thing I know and that I hope you'll agree is that Christ is coming back for his own. Amen. He's coming back for his elect. And secondly, I hope you'll agree that you don't want to see what the world is going to look like without the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit working through the people of God in this world. And so Paul says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And Paul says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what's restraining him now? so that he may be revealed in his time. And so just to kind of get this in order, so first Paul explains to the Thessalonians, remember for one thing, as we've said, you don't have to be afraid you've missed the Lord's second coming because you haven't heard a heavenly trumpet. You haven't heard a shout from on high. You haven't seen the Lord Jesus in the air or a whole host of resurrected saints gathered around him. And for another thing, you haven't seen the great rebellion happen, as dark as this world looks. Uh, some versions call it the great apostasy. And I really like how John MacArthur treats this in his commentary. He says, he says this literally, literally means the defection. He says, this is an event clearly and specifically identifiable by the description the, as in, this is the specific apostasy. It is the consummate act of rebellion. And he says, to identify the event, we must identify the person connected to the event, which is the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. And, and so all of this kind of to say, you know, you haven't missed the Lord's second coming if one, you haven't seen and heard him in the air. And two, unless you've seen the rise, the, the revelation, the epiphany of the Antichrist. Uh, and how do you know that you haven't missed all of that? Well, because Paul had taught them and he's teaching us what that future time is going to look like. Uh, and he taught that when directly when he was with them and to us by scripture that the Antichrist had not come, and more than that, could not come until the appointed time because he was subject to what Paul describes as that which restrains him. Uh, and more specifically, if you look at the text in the Greek, the phrase that it's used it actually says, he who now restrains him. Right? So, so it's not just an impersonal force, it's not a detached timeline, but it's the direct contravening hand of Almighty God in the person of his Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and this, I think, is an important point to make because uh, theologians and biblical scholars have wasted a lot of ink on this topic that just, in my humble opinion, I think they could have saved by a plain reading of the text. So let, let me just explain quickly because so, some older commentators have suggested that what Paul had in mind here as the restraint to the Antichrist was the Roman Empire. Uh, and that its overarching grip on power at the time was restraining what would be a
restrainer, he. Now, others have suggested here maybe the archangel Michael uh, is meant based on his work in the book of Daniel when he helped Gabriel overcome the dark forces he was battling in his day. And, and at least that's a he, I'll give him that, that's a he. But it doesn't really work either because Michael had a difficult kind of run in of his own with Satan in Jude verse 9 where Jude was reminding his audience kind of not to get too big for their spiritual britches. Because as he said, when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So he didn't do it in his own power. He said, the Lord rebuke you. And so I think it's pretty clear that whether we're talking about governments or individuals or even angels or archangels, on our own, we, we can't control Satan. Right. There's only one in the universe who can restrain Satan, and that is God himself. And so the power that holds back Satan from bringing the Antichrist in his final apostasy right now uh, is the Lord himself. And that's the Holy Spirit's power in operation that holds Satan's plan back. Uh, and it is a good thing, too, because it's not like Satan hasn't made several good attempts over the centuries to bring him on. Right. If you look back in history, think of. Uh, characters like Antiochus Epiphanes, who came on the scene in Jerusalem about 150 years before the birth of Jesus and desecrated the temple uh, in a satanic attempt to destroy God's people before Messiah ever came. But God restrained him. And Israel survived and the temple was restored. And then after that, there were the various Caesars who came to power during the life of the early church and tried to snuff it out before it had barely gotten started. But again, Satan was restrained. And this is, I think, really where you see the connections and the similarities start to show up again and again in the stories of the people of God, where uh, I like what Mark Twain said. He said, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it often rhymes, right? So as one after another demonically inspired murderous conqueror sprouts up throughout human history, trying to either destroy the Jews or corrupt the church or, or both, Right up to the most familiar, at least to us, uh, in Adolf Hitler, who uh, we know from letters in his own handwriting uh, from his suicide bunker. Actually, he, he believed, and I, I believe with him, that he genuinely had sold his soul to the devil on April 30th, 1932. Uh, in a document, a, a, a document that we have that exists, uh, signed in blood, in which Satan, that he calls Lucifer, promised to give Hitler unlimited power over the entire country of Germany and large parts of Europe. Uh, and it, this is a quote from the document. It said, and be flattered and honored by millions of people if in return Hitler gave his soul to the devil 13 years later. How many know, who knows when Hitler died? April, April 30th, 1945. Exactly how many years later? 13 years later. Right. Uh, and so as close as he came, though, to ruling the world... And determining the fate of people and nations. Even he couldn't pull it off because he was restrained. Just like all of the Antichrist candidates before him and anyone who may try and pop up ahead uh, in time until God ordains. Which is good news and a great relief. But at the same time, it's not an excuse for passivity in the church. Because the Bible is also equally clear, though, that the spirit of Antichrist has already been alive and active in the world even since the days of the apostles. In fact, that actual phrase, spirit of Antichrist, is found in 1 John 4. This is, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. 
Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming. And even now is what? Already in the world. And, and, and church, when, when John and the Apostle Paul wrote as they did about the Antichrist spirit that was already at work invading the churches in their day, they had a specific group in mind, one in particular that was operating in it, and that is a group called the Gnostics, which that, that name just comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. So in their own minds, they were calling themselves, they're the knowing ones, right? They're, they, they're the ones that know everything. Uh, and they really were quite a blend of different religions and cultures and and schools of thought that merged the ideals of Greek philosophy and Oriental mysticism, and they kind of mashed them all up together with Christianity and thought they really, they really found something. But one of their prime, and this is interesting, one of their primary beliefs was that the body and the mind of man's earthly existence was evil, but then trapped inside that bad shell was this divine spark of a spirit that just needed to be awakened to its true self. Okay? Just needed some self-actualization like you'll hear, right? Does that sound familiar? Uh, especially in light of the whole LGBTQ and trans movement that's invaded so much of the institutional church. Uh, to the point that now where there's even whole denominations that are tripping all over themselves to affirm generations of poor, helpless souls that think somehow nature has made a terrible mistake with them bodily when they were born and that they are just somehow a freer, better spirit trapped inside the wrong packaging, right? Uh, and so these modern day Gnostics, they claim to possess this elevated knowledge that gives them greater insights into the depths of science and religion and morality, e even to the point among today's elites where you will see folks living in absolute hypocrisy, all feeling that they are morally justified to do whatever feels right in their hearts. Uh, and now we know why. Because as the Bible says, they, ref they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Right? One author said it like, commentator said it like this. He said, in other words, for the modern day Gnostics, anything done in the body, even the grossest of sins, has no meaning or impact. Because they believe their true life and self exists only in the spirit realm of their internal feelings within a self-actualizing philosophy, get this, that releases its believers from every aspect of guilt or shame. Right? And all you got to do is turn on the news or pick up a newspaper to see them in action. Whether it's politicians in Washington and college presidents on a national level. Uh, all the way, and to my great sadness, all the way down to the once venerable level of the local Boy and Girl Scout troops that now openly invite homosexuals to participate in the raising up of our next generation. Uh, and, and today, you know, we are witnesses to so many anti-Christ messages and beliefs and theories and philosophies. And it sometimes feels overwhelming in this whole, what the Bible calls mystery of lawlessness that is already at work. Where everybody does what's right in their own eyes, regardless of the truth staring them in the face. Amen. But brothers and sisters, we don't lose hope. Because the Holy Spirit is alive and well in the world today. And more than that, he is alive and well in this church. And better than all of those, if you're in Christ, he's alive and well in you. Amen. And so you have nothing to fear in this life or in the next. 
Because even though the day of the Lord is coming and church, it's closer now than it's ever been before, regardless, even when the lawless one will be revealed, we still belong to the Lord Jesus, who Paul says will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And church, that same Lord Jesus, who scripture confirms, uh, is coming back and he's coming back in the same way the world saw him go physically boldly with his full deity and full humanity arrayed in glory and bearing in himself the sacred wounds of his crucifixion on the cross where he served as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins and sanctified us to himself so that nothing in heaven or earth can ever separate us again Amen. and church he's left us a tangible way to remember that a way that confirms that because of his particular redemption that everything in creation both the spiritual and the material matters and that they are both going to be renewed in him. And the place where we see that best is in this sacred meal that we're about to share together. A meal that is the very embodiment of that truth where not only are all five of our physical senses engaged, uh, through, but through where we are touched in the very depths of our spirit in this holy supper. So right, in the physical sense, we, we see the table laid out, right? We, we hear the words of institution. And we smell the freshness of the bread. We feel the touch of someone else's hand as the elements are passed and we taste the tartness of the wine. But above all of those things, above all of those, even as we take those into our mouths, they go, as John Calvin said, by the work of the Holy Spirit more nearly to our hearts than the elements do to our stomachs. Connecting us to Christ and with everyone else who's sharing this feast and confirming in us the faith and the hope and the love we have in him and his love for the church, for the universal church. And for this local body gathered here until he comes again to lead us safely home. And when he does that, leaving behind to judgment those that have refused Christ and will end up in the place reserved for the devil and his phony Lord. But I want to say this. If, if you're not sure this morning where you'd end up if the Lord returned today, uh, I, I urge you not to leave here today before figuring it out. Uh, and so if you've heard the voice of the Spirit speaking to you in this service, then today, uh, my friend, is the day to be saved. Repent and believe the gospel. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you will be saved. And you can do that as we pray together. Will you pray with me? Father God, it's truly right and our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Holy Supper. Recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ and asking you by the joy of his epiphany and in expectation of his coming again that you unite us in your truth and love so we can confess your name and sit together at one table. And so come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this time and this place that eyes may be opened and that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine. And we ask you to pour out your spirit upon us and upon these your gifts. That this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray.